0: This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by M.M. Lafleur. Want to look impeccable at the office but have better things to do than shop for workwear? M.M. Lafleur is a women's workwear brand that offers luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling in both straight sizes and plus sizes. Just fill out a quick online survey and one of their discerning stylists will send you a bento box of wardrobe staples handpicked just for you. Try everything on at home, keep what you like, and send back the rest. It's completely free to try and they're not a subscription service so there's no commitment. To try a bento yourself, Visit mmbento.com. That's M M B E N T com, And use the code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H at checkout, and M.M. Lafleur will donate 10% of profits to Global Giving. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. I, 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 I remember I was teasing, Friday evening it was all about eating When I became a teen it was all about beef And now I'm ready for the world Hey there, welcome to episode 135 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Lucy Affremore, fellow anti-diet dietitian and the co-author with Linda Bacon of the book Body Respect. We talked about health at every size and why we need to be weight inclusive instead of just weight neutral, the social determinants of health, the importance of having a trauma-informed focus as healthcare providers, Lucy's struggles with body image in the context of gender identity and sexuality and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. It's a really good one. But before I do, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener who gives their name as Frenchie Natalie, who writes, Hi, I am a French-Canadian from Quebec, so please be indulgent with my English. I've stopped dieting since 10 years. I've read three books by the same author about food and how to listen to your body when you feel satisfied, about emotional eating, too. I have paid a lot of money to have access to an online program done by the same author. I've learned a lot, and I am grateful I was also in a Facebook group attached to this author, but I was feeling more and more confused by promises made by the program. We were told that if you stop emotional eating, you will lose weight for sure. Since 10 years, I feel better in my mind and my body, but I didn't lose weight and others in the program didn't either. Did I miss the point? Did we all miss the point? Does stopping emotional eating drive automatically to weight loss? When I talk about it on Facebook, they say to us, buy another workshop that we have other things to solve. When I write about my concern, I was just being told that it's this simple. Stop emotional eating equals weight loss. I feel just like I did when I was dieting. Like I'm not good enough at intuitive eating. There's something that I do wrong because I'm supposed to have lost weight. But there's a little voice inside me that is saying that something is not okay with that way of thinking. I was happy with that group at the beginning, but I don't feel good now because a lot of people talk only about this weight loss or that it isn't coming. I tried to talk about my concern that this is maybe a false promise, but I was told that I was being hostile. The message that they teach us is accept yourself right now and you will lose weight later. I'm confused and think about quitting the program. I don't think it's good for my body image to always hope to lose weight. I even try. to talk about Health at Every Size with other Facebook members, but they aren't open to it. Am I okay to believe that stopping emotional eating will not necessarily make me thinner? I really like your podcast. I like it because since I listened to it, I have never felt that I'm supposed to be perfect, even with my emotional eating. Oh, So thanks, Natalie, for that great question. And I have so many thoughts. But before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. Um, So I just want to give you a big, huge hug and a big hell yeah, first of all for listening to your intuition, because that's what that little voice inside of you saying that something is not okay is about. That's your intuition. And so that voice is absolutely right. Something is definitely wrong with that way of thinking. Intuitive eating is not about weight loss, and anything that makes the promise of weight loss isn't truly intuitive eating. Because the first principle of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. And I'm always so surprised when people like coaches and authors and stuff frame intuitive eating as a weight loss method because it's like, Obviously, you didn't read the book. You didn't read the book by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch about intuitive eating. Because if those people did read the book, they would know that reject the diet mentality is the first principle, and that it truly is not about weight loss, and it truly is not something that could ever or should ever promise weight loss. So I think I know who this author is that you're talking about. I won't call her out here by name just in case I'm wrong and I don't want to slander anyone, but there is a very well-known author in this space. who's been writing books about people's relationships with food for decades and who often is people's first point of entry into the concept of intuitive eating. And she treats intuitive eating like a diet. And she's well known among my colleagues in this field for being super problematic. And we often have to spend time helping our clients untangle the ideas that she's planted in our head and, you know, help them undo the damaging ideas about Weight loss and that they're supposed to lose weight if they, quote unquote, do intuitive eating right. Because again, that's not what intuitive eating is about. Intuitive eating, there's no doing it right or doing it wrong, right? And there's also no way to predict what will happen to people's bodies with intuitive eating. So, weight loss is not the guaranteed or even the most common outcome. Because, sure, some people unintentionally might lose weight when they practice intuitive eating, but some people gain weight through intuitive eating because their weight was temporarily suppressed by diet and disordered eating beforehand. And so they had to gain weight. That was what their body wanted to do. And some people's weight stays the same and doesn't budge at all with intuitive eating, right? And you know, I never encourage people to weigh themselves or use the scale or body check or anything like that. But people will sometimes notice like, oh, my body seems to have stayed the same. I haven't had to change the size of my clothes or whatever. So that's the gamut of what could happen with people's bodies, right? You could lose weight, you could gain weight, or you could stay the same. And in fact, in my anecdotal Clinical experience, it's much more likely for people to gain weight or stay the same than it is for people to lose weight. So, I don't know the actual statistics overall with intuitive eating, but that is just to say, like, there's no way to guarantee that people are going to lose weight with intuitive eating. And it's actually really irresponsible to say that because there's no way to know what's going to happen for any individual body when they start practicing intuitive eating. And so, you know, it's totally wrong to make a guarantee like that. And saying that you're doing something wrong that an individual Practicing intuitive eating is doing something wrong because you aren't losing weight and that you have quote unquote other things to solve is just downright awful. That's awful of them to say that to you. And I'm sure these people didn't know they're being awful, right? And they're doing their best to help in a way that they think is helping, but it's actually just perpetuating fat phobia and weight stigma, which is the exact opposite of helpful, right? It's harmful. So your intuition is really spot on in questioning this program. And I would say, go with that intuition. Listen to your instinct, right? If you're feeling like you want to step away from that Facebook group, it sounds like that's the right thing to do for you. Because this author and many others like her developed their ideas before the science of health at every size was widely available. And they came up with this explanation for why people gain weight that has since been shown to be false. So that author and many like her have based their philosophies on this idea that supposedly if you release your emotional issues and you stop emotional eating, quote unquote, then you'll release the weight, quote unquote, right? And in reality, there's no such thing. That doesn't happen. That's not a universal experience. It's not about stopping emotional eating and doing it perfectly, quote unquote, and then you'll drop the weight, right? So these people are basing their ideas on very outdated philosophies and not on the science behind health at every size, which really says bodies come in a diversity of sizes and shapes. There are many people for whom a larger body size and shape is the right size and shape for them. It's what their body is meant to do. It's what is genetically determined to do. And when people are eating intuitively and trusting their body's cues and not dieting or eating in a disordered way, their bodies end up larger or their bodies don't lose any weight. And that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly good and healthy for that person, right? That's well-being for that person. And that's what it sounds like is the case for you, Natalie, who asked the question, right? It sounds like you've really done a lot of work to make peace with food. You've done a lot of work to find other coping skills than eating with your emotions, but also, you know, not demonizing emotional eating, right? And it sounds like you have an instinctive understanding that emotional eating is not quote unquote bad and you're not quote unquote doing it wrong if you find yourself occasionally emotionally eating because the reality is emotional eating is a part of normal eating. It's a part of intuitive eating and everybody eats emotionally sometimes. So if you're demonizing emotional eating, That's actually the problem, not the emotional eating itself, right? Some level of emotional eating is normal. It's only when emotional eating becomes the only like the sole form of coping, right? Your only coping mechanism. Or if it's used to like punish yourself and berate yourself and used in a really self-negating way that's when it's a problem and it's something that needs to be looked at, but it's not something that needs to be like taken away, right? It's a coping mechanism that you've stumbled into that has served you okay up until this point, but it's maybe causing more harm than good. And so let's find some other coping mechanisms you can use, but not eradicate emotional eating altogether because that's just impossible. Because emotional eating, again, is a part of normal eating, is a part of intuitive eating. So I hope that helps you sort of put this into perspective. And I would say, again, just trust your instincts, trust your intuition. It seems like it's steering you in a really positive direction. And know that you're not alone. For a lot of people, for most people, in fact, stopping using food for emotional safety and emotional comfort all the time and finding other coping skills and having emotional eating take its place as just one coping mechanism in your life and learning intuitive eating and connecting with your body's wisdom about food often does not lead to any weight loss whatsoever, and in some cases, many cases, leads to weight gain because that's what a person needed. So... Whatever happens with your body, whatever your body does in response to intuitive eating, that's what it's meant to do. That's what's appropriate for your body. And barring the case of clinical restrictive eating disorders, right, that's a whole other situation in which full intuitive eating is not recommended. And listen to episode 127 for my explanation of why. But otherwise, in cases other than that, intuitive eating really will lead you to the right place for your body. And that doesn't involve weight loss for most people. So, trust your instinct. Thank you so much for asking the question. And again, a big hug and a big hell yeah for you in asking this question and really having this instinct that is serving you so well. If you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode of the podcast, go to christyharrison.com slash questions to submit yours. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then if you want a whole library of answers from me about the ins and outs of intuitive eating, plus a chance to ask me any question you want, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to leave diet culture behind in 2018, join the course now and become a part of a wonderful community that will support you on this journey. Plus, now through New Year's Day, I'm offering gift subscriptions to the course. So it's a perfect present for that loved one on your list who needs some anti-diet energy in their life, you know. Or you can put it on your wish list so that your friends and family know how to get it for you. You can grab it at christyharrison.com gift. That's christyharrison.com gift. We're brought to you today by StoryWorth. Everyone has a family member who tells great stories, like my dad, who's got a lot of fascinating tales about being in on the ground floor of technology as a computer programmer in the 60s, or all the ridiculous death-defying things that he did in his youth. Storyworth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share those stories. Purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week, Storyworth will send them an email with a question about their life. They reply with their story either via phone or email, and then after a year, their stories are all collected and bound into a beautiful keepsake book. And don't worry, your data is secure and everything is private by default, so you control who sees your stories. It's a great way to learn about your family and bridge geographic distance, and Storyworth makes it's easy to preserve your memories and pass them on to your children and their future families. It's a great holiday gift for anyone who enjoys telling stories. I'm giving it as a gift to my dad, and uh, I'm 99% sure he's not listening to this right now, so hopefully I'm not ruining any surprises. But, you know, my family is scattered across the U.S., and so I thought this would be a great way to bring us together to get his stories bound in a book and have us all be able to connect over that. For $20 off when you subscribe, visit storyworth.com psych. That's storyworth.com slash P-S-Y-C-H. We're also brought to you today by M.M. LaFleur. For the woman who wants to look impeccable at work but has better things to do than sift through uninspiring racks of pantsuits, the solution is M.M. LaFleur. They take the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling in both straight sizes and plus sizes, which is why I'm so happy that they're supporting the podcast. Just fill out a quick online survey and one of their discerning stylists will send you a bento box of wardrobe staples handpicked just for you based on your preferences and lifestyle. Once your bento arrives, you'll have four days to try everything on. Then keep what you like and send the rest back. You won't be charged anything up front and you only pay for the items you keep, so it's completely free to try and even shipping is free both ways. And because it's not a subscription service, there's no commitment, so you got nothing to lose. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's com. Plus, when you use the code psych, P-S-Y-C-H at checkout, MM Lafleur will donate 10% of profits to Global Giving, which is my favorite charity for hurricane relief. So just go to mmbento.com and use the code psych at checkout. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Lucy Afremor. So, tell me about your relationship with food growing up.
1: So, I was thinking about this, Christy, when I got your questions. And the first thing that came to mind was how unremarkable it was. But I suppose that's because it was my relationship with food and it's all I knew. So, when I was growing up, my idea of unremarkable was that I would expect, I took it for granted that there'd be food in the house. And my mother cooked for us and there was regularly food available. And I think looking back, food became problematic for me. I became more aware of of food in my life when I was probably around 12 or 13. And looking back, I was moving towards what would probably now be diagnosed as orthorexia. And at the time, I just understood as healthy eating. And I had access to sort of whole food ideas sort of before they became popularly available. And I did a lot of running and that sort of was tied up in it. So I was interested in whole food cooking and healthy eating in huge scare quotes. (laughs) Although certainly not for me at the time, certainly not. And then by the time I was older, sort of 16, I was self-restricting a lot around weight as the focus. Until then, it hadn't really been weight as the focus. It was more this sort of healthy eating agenda. I remember going, after I finished what we used to do O-level, so I would have been 15, 16, going to spend time with a French pen friend. And I can remember sitting at the dinner table and just wanting the water, drinking loads and loads of water, and the comments being made about the fact that I wasn't eating. So again, looking back, I would certainly have been diagnosed with anorexia. And that continued for another two years through so two years of sixth form and the whole thing with the relationship with food as well it's only in hindsight I've sort of forgotten this but terrible IBS with it as well so I went off to university to do nutrition and dietetics and the first lost a lot of weight when I got to university and then at the end I did one term and when I returned into the second term, so soon into the beginning of the second term, I had gut problems that meant I had to have surgery that I didn't understand at the time as a complication of anorexia, but I certainly would now. I write a lot, um, particularly poetry, and sometimes things, I remember things through the poetry that I've sort of shelved consciously, but they pop up. And there's a line in the poetry, there was um, a Norwegian pop band, Aha!, that had a number one single at the time. And the line of the poetry is, when I was in hospital, I realised I was killing myself. Call it an aha moment, if you will, with the sun always shines on TV, playing on the interminable radio on the nurses' station. And it was never intentionally meant as suicide. So I ate one brave dollop of chaos after the next, at my way through variations on survival. And so when I left university for the rest of the year, And lived at home. And then I would think that was just, I would think of it now as just chaotic eating. So I decided to eat, but I was still certainly struggling. But the decision, I decided, yeah, I was no longer going to starve myself. And sort of tied up with that, I mean, first of all, I was too poorly to resume any running. But tied up with that, I had this idea that the desire to be thinness had come from running. And so, I decided I wasn't going
0: to run competitively either. So that's all just tricky. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Did you have a coach or someone who told you about weight and, and that planted the seed of weight loss or did you kind of come to that on your own?
1: No, I came to it on my own. And I think it became about weight, but I think even deeper than that, it was around autonomy, it was around control. And I think at the time, There wasn't that much talk around weight. One thing that the running did was people would ask me, have you lost weight? And I would just say, yes, it's for running. So it was an easy way of sanitizing what I was going through. And what fascinates me now is that nobody pressed. People weren't really that interested or perhaps out of their depths. Who knows? But certainly my experiences weren't translatable in the narratives that were available to others at the time.
0: Hmm. Was anorexia even really talked about then? Was it in the public eye at
1: all? Yeah, it was in it was in the public eye, but not in the way that it is now. And I think as well that I was academically capable and nationally ranked in running. That that and pathology don't really go in a mainstream view, that and pathology don't go hand in hand. So again, it was quite easy to get away with.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's so common even today, right? Like with the sort of fitspo community or, you know, fitness as being held up as a holy grail of health. Like if someone looks fit, quote unquote, they're not deemed to be sick or thought to be sick. Mm-hmm. And in fact, some of the people who are the most, you know, the sort of icons held up as, as you know, fitness gurus or Instagram fitness stars or whatever are actually really sick and really struggling but we still don't see that.
1: Yeah. And I wrote a chapter for a book. It was on feminisms in PE and leisure. And I was reflecting on these experiences. And when I was writing, it made me realize that I was also grateful for the fact that I'd been able to use eating or not eating in this way, because I don't know what else I'd have done. So I was overtraining and under eating. And that was actually a really resourceful response to the circumstances of the time. And it it made me think when I'm working with people to remember the value of what people, you know, circumstances might not change for a long time.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. I think it is really important to acknowledge that people don't just come to coping mechanisms like that out of nowhere. (laughs) Like it serves a purpose, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that the If circumstances aren't going to change, then maybe the coping mechanisms aren't going to change either.
0: Yeah. Was that the case for you? Did you feel sort of stuck in those behaviors because of your circumstances?
1: So I went back to university and did a finish my degree. And I think the circumstances, in a sense, so I finished the degree and then I bought a one-way ticket to Mumbai in India. And part of that sort of, again, unconsciously was to escape circumstances. But of course, the circumstances were me. And I took myself with me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was again, I was, it was running again. I was really lucky. So I was using running as emotional regulation. So eating sort of sorted itself out. And again, I didn't have an understanding for this at the time, but the circumstances that, that I was coping with was a trauma legacy. And that really, you know, the sort of tsunami of trauma crashed upon me. And that was when. I started starving myself for a second time round, but at this time, I could talk about it. I could put words to it, and I knew to ask for help as well. So that was very different second time
0: round. Yeah, what do you think made that difference? I met a feminist sports psychologist. Oh my <laughs> I gosh! That, I think that <laughs> made all the difference. Yeah, yeah.
1: So it was somebody who was helping me to put my experience to words and helping me to make sense of things, not giving me a template, not spoon feeding me a narrative, but asking me questions in a way that enabled me to start to speak my experiences into something I could begin to make
0: sense of. Right. How did you find her? Did you reach out for help or were you assigned to her by your university?
1: I was living in Hong Kong at the time and I was doing a lot of running. And my coach at the time had said to me, did I know any sports psychologists? And very, what's the word? Audaciously, <laughs> of me, I contacted her, and she was just really, really helpful. And my coach at the time had. When I asked him a years later, he said that he knew there was something that he couldn't help me with. It was very insightful of him, and that's why he suggested a psychologist. So really, I landed on my feet. Uh,
0: yeah, that's really lucky. Exceedingly lucky. Yeah. And how did it go from there then when you were able to start to talk about it and reflect on what you were doing with food and how that was helping you cope? Did you end up finding other coping mechanisms at that point or how did it unfold?
1: No, not immediately. So what it became, again, so with reflection, what became apparent was that the struggles with eating had been symptomatic of a much deeper struggle and the deeper struggle took over. So I had a real breakdown. And it was through that, it was so the eating then was just part and parcel of just trying to look after myself. The troubled eating was no longer a focus. I understood that there was something deeper going on. And the sort of dysregulated eating was a symptom of that, but wasn't the thing itself. So I would say the eating, I was free of an eating disorder for a long of sort of eating disorder symptoms. For a long time, before I returned to my body, there were two different things that I'd learned to eat in a way that was free of eating disorder symptoms, but that was a very different thing, as I would only learn later, because how could I know otherwise, really? That was a very different thing than what I would think of as a return to the body.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's so common for a lot of people who struggle with this stuff, right? It's, it's the eating can fall into place more or less first, but the body image work and the relationship with one's body and sort of coming home to your body is a whole other animal. And sometimes they can, you know, happen in tandem if if you're working in a particular program or have support on both fronts. But I think it does typically take a lot longer for the body image stuff to really sort itself out.
1: Yeah, I would agree, and I think as well that when I first started work as a dietitian in the UK, that I would. Initially, I would talk think about body image, but now when I'm working with people, I think more about identity resilience because I think that perhaps the way that body image is culturally constructed, so outside of a particular clinical meaning, that the sort of popular construction, for me, it didn't invite gender identity. It didn't invite sexuality. It didn't invite other aspects of identity into a frame of thought. So I was really lucky that I managed to come through Despite that, but when I reflect back and think what might have helped me to expand the lens that I looked through sooner, then I think that the way that some of these sort of concepts get packaged to us, I'm looking for other ways of talking about it that I suppose aren't so, it's not exactly set in stone, but that they're a bit more unknown. And also I think the thing with identity resilience, again, is that if I'm working with somebody their circumstances might not change for X number of years. And this core idea of identity resilience, helping somebody to value who they are, regardless, to understand stigma and shame and trauma, but to have something to understand themselves in such a way that they can make sense of that, even if they can't change their own circumstances in any significant way. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So it's a way to sort of bridge through that difficult period where maybe you're still, you have the same circumstances and are still holding on to the same coping mechanisms, but to understand your identity in a way that maybe can help facilitate change down the line, even if it can't happen now.
1: Yeah. And I suppose that core sense of innate worth, to know that regardless of how much you might want to change your bodies.
0: Right. Yeah. So how are those things tied up for you then? Like the sense of self-worth, the gender identity, the sexuality, how did that all come into your own body image experience or relationship with your body, really? Not just body image, but, but kind of the larger sense of relating to your body.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Where to start with that? On gender identity, I would say vocabulary was hugely important, I was reading a book on gender and a list of different terms used for gender identity, and it was just going through that and lighting on a few, and I just thought, that's me. I mean, there'd been a lot of work, a lot of, not necessarily work, but a lot of thinking. So I'm interested in language, so I've I've written a lot, but not particularly on the the topic. And more than that, there's been a lot of just a sense of alienation and not even figuring out it was around gender identity. So then reading this book on gender identity, Lighting on these terms and thinking that's me in a way that was the work that was a really key thing being able to name myself it wasn't that I needed to tell people even it was just helping me to get a sense of who I was and until then I hadn't even really known that one thing that it was gender that it wasn't sitting right I was like so much unawareness of self in that regard so that was that was just really really helpful and relatively painless And, you know, in the end, (laughs) right? (laughs) not not the getting there (laughs) with some major fashion faux pas, (laughs) 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 you know, just trying, that was the thing of trying to find a sense of being in my own skin, but not knowing, not knowing what to try with.
0: Right. Like what are the tools to help you get there? You didn't, you didn't even know.
1: Yeah. I I was completely clueless.
0: And there's something so powerful about language and naming something and saying like, yes, I identify with this, this concept or this term or this word and feeling like you're not alone. Because if that exists in a book, then it exists in the world, you know, like, you know, that it's something that other people have experienced, too.
1: Absolutely. And I think more so with gender identity than with queer. I don't know know why, but maybe because queer came sooner. So yeah, yeah, the thing of finding it in a book was really, really powerful.
0: Yeah, how did your identity as queer come into play? Was that, you said it came sooner, was that like adolescence or?
1: No, sooner than gender identity, Mm. but not until I was late 20s, 30, I would say. And that was writing a poem. And I was writing the poem about a man that I'd had a relationship with. And in the poem, I realized, so in the, the gist of the poem was that I would have had the relationship had he been, that I was asking the reader to guess the gender of the person i had the relationship with. And that's when I sat back and I thought, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> right, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the thing of, that poetry has been really helpful for me because it taps into the unconscious, because I write in a very unguarded way. The breaks aren't on. And so, and maybe I miss it, you know, maybe it'd been in stuff I'd written sooner, but then I wrote it and I was able to see it. And again, that was, that just
0: made sense. Right. Yeah, so something just clicked when you heard or you saw that sort of turn of phrase.
1: Mm-hmm. It was so scary. I think the whole thing of a shift in identity,
0: but it made sense. Yeah, that's so interesting. So what role did poetry play, do you think, in your in your recovery? Where did that come into play? Had you always been writing from childhood or?
1: No, I started writing when I came back from Hong Kong and got into crisis and entered the mental health system. And I wanted, I was sort of trying to get some structure, some purpose to my day. Well, I wasn't able to get paid employment. And so I decided to do a writing course. uh, No, it's a literature course. And one of the assignments that we were given was to start writing our autobiography. And I wrote some in prose, And I wrote some in poems. And the tutor was just very encouraging about the poetry. And that set me off, really. It was like a whole world opening. And I think, as well, you're saying about recovery, that I think when I'm working with people around food, the model that I would use, I think of it as um, eating distress discovery. And that's how I see the poetry, that it helps me discover things. And it's not so much that this idea of a linear narrative moving from a sort of before and after. Is not one that I've found helpful and I think politically as well if we want to move away from some of the thinking it can end up getting quite enabling so so I think for me poetry is, has been really about discovery and it certainly inf- informs the model that I would use in practice as well that sort of way of looking at things in a relational way that plays with temporality um, plays with location plays with possibility
0: that's interesting. I mean, I think there is this tension, right, in the sort of recovery community around, is it a process of recovery that's lifelong or is it recovered and you reach a certain point and that's it, right? And yeah, and I think there's value to seeing both, but I think, because I think the, the concept of recovered, like I identify with that in the sense that I don't struggle with food or body image anymore. I mean, body image living in diet culture, like there's always little little moments, you know, that happen once in a while, mm-hmm. but I I'm not my life is not sort of incapacitated by that stuff like it was before. But also, my psychological development and healing I think is ongoing and probably always will be in terms of the roots of what caused the eating disturbance in the first place and the living within diet culture, living within a patriarchy, living within a society that has so much social injustice and having to grapple with that. And all of that, I think, plays into why people develop issues with food in their bodies. And so Mm. it is an ongoing process, I think, for all of us. And I think thinking of it as a process can be really helpful and healing and hopeful for people who are in the midst of it, because it's like, you're not just throwing away these years of your life. Like this middle ground that you're in right now is not some purgatory that is, you know, is wasted. Like this is actually beautiful life too. And if you can experience it that way and sort of think of it as as part of it rather than like, this is just the slog that I have to get through to get to recovered.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think as well that that increasingly, I've sought to locate my work within a sort of politicised mental health agenda. And in the UK, there's been a concept of recovery for for quite some time, and it's been really sort of co-opted by a very neoliberal market agenda. There's a lot of work around unrecovery, which is exactly what you were saying there, or a large part of it, recognising the way that structural forces influence our ways of being in the world and continue to do so, regardless of how we change our own internal milieu and and of course you know keep on working on it in sort of dynamic interaction so yeah so i'm just interested in the way that we use all these the sort of concept of recovery and there's something else comes to mind that before i came back to england permanently i'd come back on holiday and i was really struggling and i'd sought out a therapist working in eating disorders and i was staying with friends at the time and when i went back after the first session my friends had asked me how it had gone and the therapist has said to me that eating disorders was the least of my problems. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's just sadly, you know, uh. even for a rocky ride. <laughs> but I think that whole idea of, it, on one hand, on paper, I was certainly recovered from the eating disorders, but there's a lot of work, a lot of exploration to do still.
0: Yeah. Right. That discovery process of your own inner world. And, I'm interested in how you came to become a dietitian in that process. Were you recovered from the behaviors when you decided to to pursue that academic training? Or how did that look?
1: No, so I trained as a dietitian straight from school. And that's when I started the course and then ended up in hospital after the first term and then went back. So, I started it with with very restrictive behavior, self starving. And when I went back, I was a very chaotic eater and graduated with a distinction. As a, this is in the poem with a hard one, two, one, a distinction in dietetics and an eating disorder of a blessedly non starving variety.
0: Mm. Oh, my gosh. I feel like so many dietitians listening can probably identify with that or health professionals in general. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I also went back to school when I was still healing you know i wasn't wasn't in the starving place either but i was in the sort of restrictive orthorexic place and they're not fully restrictive but you know restrict binge or restrict over exercise binge mm-hmm. cycle that was you know, less prominent, less frequent than it had been before I worked in food media. I was a journalist first and I went back to school to be a dietitian later. So working in food media really helped with the sort of early stages of recovery, but I was definitely partly motivated to become a dietitian by this idea that like, well, if I'm a dietitian, maybe I'll finally find the secret to losing weight permanently, Mm -hmm. or I'll finally get a handle on why I'm such an emotional eater, quote unquote, you know, and Mm -hmm. figure out why I'm behaving in this weird way towards food. And it really was such a blessing that somewhere in my schooling, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating, and Mm -hmm. that helped reframe my thinking and it wasn't even in a class it wasn't like i was taught that you know because as i'm sure is is common in the uk as well like dietitians don't really get training on non-diet approaches it really is very rooted in the diet mentality and at least here it was like you know here's how to calculate someone's ideal body weight quote unquote and here's how many calories they need to to lose weight on that or whatever Mm -hmm. and so you know it was really fortunate that i kind of came to this other direction but could have just as easily, I think, been a longer road of staying the traditional diet paradigm and not really getting exposed to this other way of thinking.
1: I absolutely agree with what you said there, Christy. And I think that the fact that there's so many dietitians, so many people who go into dietetics because of their own eating distress. And in the UK, you're not actually allowed to train as a dietitian if you've got I don't know if it's a history of eating disorders still or an active eating disorder. And for me, that's a really sad indictment of the curriculum that's on offer. Because if I'm training in nutrition, I want it to be helpful for people who are struggling with food. Right. And of course, it's, all, it's very disabled. and it makes it very difficult then for students who are struggling to speak up and seek help. And of course, it carries on repressing trauma narratives. So the knowledge that gets created Reinforces the systems of thought and the values that lead to the the disconnect that can be seen in eating disorders in the first place.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, that is so sad because it, it seems like, yeah, most people who do this work, I think most people who do any line of work have some personal reason for it you know I think there's there's not a lot of people who become passionate about a particular career for just no reason just because it landed in their lap right it's like Mm-mm. yeah there's a meaning isn't there yeah we all want to make meaning out of things we all we're sort of drawn to that I think in our mm-hmm. careers and so to say like people with an eating disorder history especially can't do this work it's like well that precludes probably you know 90% of this this field right of the Mm -hmm. people in this field like who doesn't have some history of struggling with this stuff Mm -hmm. and also eating disorders are such a spectrum I think right like there's the full-blown diagnosed eating disorders which are definitely tricky and have their own sort of management, which can be like the traditional weight paradigm and medical model of managing eating disorders can actually lessen the rates of recovery and make things worse in a lot of ways. But there are some versions of healing from eating disorders that are very healing and therapeutic and helpful and important. But there's this whole other spectrum of disordered eating where people who are not diagnosed with an eating disorder and maybe are in a larger body that doesn't get seen as having an eating disorder, doesn't get labeled as having an eating disorder, aren't able to get help Mm -hmm. for that. And so, yeah, I think having training in nutrition and dietetics that is actually healing for people who are struggling could be such a blessing because so many people are attracted to this field because they're in some sort of disordered state with food. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm curious how your experience was as a dietitian when you first... Like, did you go out and and start working after you kind of got a handle on your own relationship with food, or what did that look like?
1: So, I hadn't worked in dietetics for ages. When I was living overseas, I did some sports nutrition, and I had a few private clients that I was seeing for weight correction to my regret. But I hadn't really done much with nutrition at all. I've been a baker, and when I came back to the UK, I worked, I ran a market garden. So, I decided to do a return to practice course, and I was also working in disability advocacy. I was working in the mental health system, and that really informed my practice because I began to get a political awareness. So these were sort of going on at the same time. I was working part time in mental health, so disability rights, and part time as a locum dietitian. And so the dietetics was really informed by a political awakening. So when I was, and it's back to this idea that when I started work as a dietitian in the UK, I wouldn't have classed my, I was certainly over an eating disorder, but I wasn't, I was still living at one remove from my body. And I think it was more my experiences in the mental health system that was overtly informing practice because it had woken me up to social justice.
0: Yeah, that's a really fortunate path because so many dietitians don't get woken up to that.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That and I did a course in women's studies as well, an ad ed course. So I had different frameworks of thought and I'd learned to question.
0: Right. Oh, that's so important. And was that sort of the basis then by which you started to think about body size and discrimination, weight stigma? Did that sort of inform your thinking on that?
1: It helped me when I began to realize that all was not as I've been led to believe. So it was listening to people's stories overwhelmingly white working class women who'd been told to lose weight or who wanted to lose weight it was listening to stories of horrific appalling prejudice because of their size but in and beyond healthcare, of just terrible shame the shame that people felt and also beginning to it was beginning to dawn on me that it really wasn't people's health status really wasn't down to food certainly that can affect quality of life and yes economic access to food was really important and that certainly had to be kept in the picture but even if everybody made the recommendations that I was suggesting there wasn't going to be a significant difference in people's health so it was these sort of things coming together also when nobody lost weight I looked into the I got the primary data for the weight management guidelines at the time to see where I was going wrong really and that was like falling without a net for a while because. I'd taken it in good faith that the guidelines were supported by the evidence and of course they weren't. So in reading round I came to realise that there's actually adverse effect from recommending calorie restriction. So I knew that I could no longer recommend dieting and I wanted something that didn't add to size bias and a way of integrating social determinants of health That I'd begin to read around I started looking at racism and heart health and again I landed on my feet with some of Nancy Krieger's work looking at the impact of racism and child abuse on
0: health so I was beginning to get ways to think through all this stuff that had just been sort of repressed knowledge really that's really interesting. The social determinants of health is such a huge piece. And that was also really pivotal in my work and sort of changing the direction of my thinking because I took a, a social determinants of health class in my master's program for public health and went into it thinking, OK, this is going to, you know, I was in the the course on public health nutrition and everybody was like, oh, take this course on social determinants of health. It's so great. It's so great. You know, all my friends in the program and I was like, OK, cool. I'm going to learn how my sort of assumption at the time was like how people's social determinants affect people's health and how we can intervene nutritionally to fix that, you know, mm-hmm. that like yeah. <laughs> somehow nutrition was going to was going to be a part of the solution. And in fact, I took away from it that nutrition was such a tiny fraction of the solution or the problem. And that really all of these other factors like racism, like poverty, like stigma, you know, on various levels were actually responsible for or linked to greater risk of all these chronic diseases that we were always told were linked to weight or linked to food. And so mm-hmm. it was just like, wow, really? Okay. This is this definitely threw me for a loop too. Mm-hmm. Felt like a bit of a free fall as well. Like, well, what do we do then? What is the solution if I'm training to intervene nutritionally with people and nutrition actually isn't that big of a of an influence, big of a determinant on people's health. Like, what do we do instead? Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate that at the time I was doing my studies, health at every size was there. And that framework was something I could sort of plug into. But I think, yeah, it must have been interesting to do that research yourself and to sort of be having to cobble it together. Because I don't know if the health at every size framework was something that you just plugged into also, or were you kind of coming at it from your own through the wilderness, basically.
1: I wasn't aware of health at every size when I first started practicing differently. And then I, I came across it. And yeah, that was great to find people who seem to be on the same page and to have access to the studies, to the easy access to the studies, access to conversations and frameworks of thought. And I think when I again when I reflect on things, I called my approach Well Now. And until relatively recently, I framed Well Now as a health at every size approach. And it's only in the last few years that I've drawn a distinction between the two. I think largely around a sort of starting point of how social justice gets integrated into the two approaches. So certainly there's a lot of places where health at every size and well now do overlap and are on the same page. The approach that I want for my work, I draw the distinction at
0: sort of core, the deep roots, I suppose. That's what I'd say. Mm. And how does that look in practice? Are you talking about rooting out the healthism that might be... Inherent in some people's approaches with Health Every Size?
1: Yeah, and I think, like you said there, that what do I even mean by Health Every Size? Because there's so many different approaches. And I think when I've looked at the theory of it, that one thing quite early on in my work, and possibly because I'd taken it for granted that the stuff that I was relying on was evidence based, when I realized I could no longer do that, being able to theorize things became really important to me so that I could figure out what actually was supported by data and theory. What had been thought through and what, what were the assumptions? And so when I'm talking about health at every size, I'm talking about mainly drawing on the official definitions on the ASDA website, um, Science, Diversity and Health. And I think one thing for me is that I want, that in the work that I do with WellNow, I want it to be compassion-centred, trauma-informed and justice-enhancing. And I don't think it can be any of those unless it's all three. And when I look at justice enhancing, that means that I want the language I use to be intentionally political. And for a long time I was calling well now weight neutral, but when I actually thought about it, I realized that I no longer think that neutrality and social justice can exist as common aims. So it's at that sort of level, looking at looking at praxis, why do I do what I do? So if it's going to be trauma-informed, compassion-centred, and justice-enhancing. It also needs to be relational, body aware, and intentionally political. And it's just made me sit back and think, What's the, what have I inherited here? What's the inherited language? What are the inherited concepts? And try and theorize them. And in, in that process, and through conversation, that's really helped me to get clarity. There was something I couldn't put my finger on for a long time. And taking a step back and returning to theory is something that's helped me a lot.
0: Mm. And I think that idea of weight-neutral... As, as being problematic is something I've just started to hear spoken about recently. And I can't remember who who first said this to me, or maybe it was something of yours that got transmitted through other folks, but weight inclusive has been something that I've started to say instead of weight neutral, too, because mm-hmm. it's about being inclusive of people of all body sizes. Not, It's hard to be neutral in the face of injustice, right? So, I think being inclusive as opposed to neutral seems to be a better approach to -hmm. to dealing with injustice.
1: And I think the idea of neutrality suggests that we can have relationships without power and that as a metaphor that can take us back into a default that ends up being unintentionally healthist. Mm, That's interesting. And and I think one thing that you said as well is the power of community and conversation and change starts in conversation and just how vital that is that we have places where we can talk about these
0: concepts. Absolutely, I know. Where have you found those communities to exist for you? Do you have like in-person communities to have those conversations? Is it mostly online? Is it conferences or how did that come to be for you?
1: I think the in-person are people in the UK that I've met through training. And there's um, in NHS Highland, there's a lot of people who've been trained in, in well-known delivering services using a well-now approach. And what's fantastic about that is it's real-life application because it has to be pragmatic. So that's really, really useful. It's all right for me to go in with theory, but it has to be in such a way that it makes sense to people who are delivering it on the ground. Who might be relatively new to these ideas. So that's that's really helpful. Folks that I've met through Health to Size, definitely, and poetry community and another community that belong to us, a, a spiritual community, And again, not because we talk particularly about bodies, about healthism, but because of attention to the way that we use language, to the politics of knowledge creation, to creating places where we can try out ideas. That's been hugely important to me.
0: Mm. And one thing I'm hearing you say there, too, is that it's not just about talking about these topics in particular, it's also about having other aspects of your life be supported like the spiritual and the creative as a way to kind of enhance your ability to be a whole person approaching these issues.
1: Yeah. And I think one thing that really surprised me is I was sat in the spiritual community. I was referring to the Quakers. I am a Quaker. This is before I joined. I was in a meeting and I said really sort of randomly, certainly bizarrely that it was the first place where I'd ever felt held professionally which is quite an odd thing to say for a spiritual community where we're discussing nothing remotely connected, or I mean, apart from the fact that everything's connected, but nothing (laughs) explicitly connected with the topics of my profession. And yet it was because there was room in the room. The way of knowledge that we were using, the way of sort of coming to knowledge was intellectual and particularly paying attention to language and binaries. And there's this idea of discernment what is it that is held in bodies? What is it that's held collectively that's in the room that escapes being put into words? What is it into words? What is it like that lies beyond language? And I've never found that in community before. And also the social justice. What is it that speaks to that which is eternal in everyone? What is it of the human condition, of human dignity? And that was a real eye-opener for me because it's the last place I would ever have imagined
0: myself saying that I felt held professionally. Yeah, that's beautiful. And how how wonderful to have a community like that that could provide that kind of support. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I found a little bit of that, not so much the social justice aspect, but I used to do and still occasionally do improv comedy. And I feel like mm. that <laughs> idea of, yeah. you know, the collective. I do know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, awesome. that's
1: the open mic nights at Poetry.
0: Nice. Yeah, totally. Yeah,
1: just, and trying it out. You're trying out a bit of yourself. Right, No, and you get, so yes, we get the audience feedback, but it's a a visceral feedback Mm -hmm. as well. It's, you know, it's the emotional, it's the erotic, it's the spiritual, the thing is is like it's sort of paradoxically trying out with words to reach something that lies beyond words.
0: Mm -hmm. Totally. With a group of people too. Like the form that I did was long form improvisation. So it'd be like a, you know, 50 minute set of, of, uh, yeah. (laughs) With other people, too. So we'd be playing characters, and we'd be creating this world. And it was just so fascinating to sort of let go of all, you know, and of course, that was a practice too to let go of judgment. Because in the moment, if someone comes out and is like, hey, there's a call for you from the president of Mars, you know, you have to yeah. you have to say yes and to that, right? That's a principle yeah. of improv. It's like, you can't be like, what are you talking about? We're on earth, you know? You have to kind of go with Mm-mm. it. So sort of letting go of judgment and shooting down people's ideas or whatever and, mm-hmm. and being able to just like go with it and make something of it, mm-hmm. which there's a saying in long form improv, which is like, Harold came to us tonight. Like Harold was here or whatever. And, and Harold is this idea of this other sort of being this like collected this creation of the collective unconscious that like v- visits you and sort of talks through you you know and sometimes mm-hmm. harold shows up and most of the time he doesn't you know it's like mm-hmm. it's sort of a rare occasion for harold to come but when when he does it's like or when they do whatever Mm-mm. whatever harold is
1: sounds like congruence
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: sense of coherence. I think we can frame it, can't we, in different vocabulary.
0: Right. Totally. But it's sort of this like elusive thing. It's like you just you know it when you feel it, but it's not always it's not always there. Yeah.
1: And I think as well what you're talking to there, that for me, when I think of the work that I do, that food is the vehicle. Food and eating and bodies are the vehicle for the thing that I'm talking about, which is a different way of relating to the world, a different way of being in the world. And it sounds like that's what you're practicing an improv
0: mhm absolutely the core you know the core
1: of it has a lot of crossover if not if not the same threads
0: totally i do feel like improv really informed my work with clients and my work in teaching intuitive eating as well because there is that sense of like it's the just like improv there's this form whatever the form is you know there are different you know you could do a mono scene you could do a a herald one one is called where it's like six different scenes and they all interconnect or you could do you know there's all these different ways to sort of structure it but Mm -hmm. whatever the structure is is just an entry point into the thing and i think it is definitely that way with food and my experience of working with clients who really will click into their intuition around food and then how that translates into their intuition in other areas of life where Mm -hmm. they'll see like, Oh this job is really not nourishing to me because I'm having this bad feeling there all the time and I didn't even notice or recognize what this bad feeling was and that it was located in this place you know until I was able to tune into my intuition through food and start prioritizing self-care through food. Mm-hmm. So it's it's this really cool way that it kind of branches out into all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. I really love that. Yeah. So tell us more about your work and what you do with clients in the Well Now process, like what that looks like.
1: I train people, health practitioners, nutrition professionals or counselors mainly, and people from other disciplines as well. I started doing more one-to-one work more recently. And what I find in that is that, again, that food is the vehicle and people will often come because they want to lose weight. That it's this helping people to look at the systems of thought And the assumptions that they have around their eating and around their body and others' bodies. Because when we can catch the deep roots of a system of thought, then everything changes. So I tend to talk around about food. When we start talking about food, it's a pretty good indicator that somebody won't be coming very much longer. Talking to sort of nutrition science in any detail, it's more around really helping people hear what they're saying to themselves and finding different frameworks for thinking about self-care for thinking about health.
0: Yeah, and what does that transition like for someone who comes in the door wanting weight loss? Like how do you sort of reframe the discussion?
1: I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's asking questions that help people arrive at the the assumptions that they've brought. So clearly the idea that You know, there's a very deep assumption that everybody can and should be thin. So asking questions that help people to get different perspectives on that, exploring people's ambivalence, looking at the meanings of thinness, the meanings of dieting, recognising. There's a term that I came across recently that I will be using from now on because it very succinctly captures what I've been trying to got to in a very long winded way myself. But we're quite familiar with the idea of comfort eating and the term I came across was the idea of comfort dieting as well so what role is restriction playing so it is asking questions that get to the deep roots of what people are telling me and also giving them different frameworks to make sense of their experiences so that's there's various frameworks that I again that I've theorized my work with and one is through salutogenesis and this is work by an epidemiologist Anton Antonovsky, and In brief, he was doing work around the menopause and he realised that a small but significant number of women in the research group had survived the Holocaust and had gone on to thrive. And he asked himself, how is this possible? How on earth can this be possible? And he worked with these women to answer that question. And there was various things that he found. And one was that the women believed that their life mattered. So that the core thing of self-worth regardless of health status or anything else that's going on so for every fiber in our body as health practitioners to reflect back to somebody you are worthy of respect and that the minute that I start giving suggestions or advice what I'm inadvertently saying is I know best so to make sure that how I engage with somebody completely reflects that and the other thing was that how I've sort of translated it into my work Is to help people. This is a sort of iterative thing to meet their needs. And in order to do that, you have to be able to identify your needs. And if you're misreading a need as, if we think I've got a mainly physical hunger, and actually it's an emotional, mainly emotional, or I need fresh air, or I need a rest, it's helping people to get frameworks of thought that help them to figure out what's going on for them and give themselves permission. Which is can be a really new concept, as you'll know. Give themselves permission not only to meet their needs, but to allow themselves desires as well. So that's sort of framework that I would use, and that's a a, pra- a lot of that the practice of body awareness.
0: Right, and that I think that's so beautiful and important. That idea of recognizing your desires and honoring that, and giving yourself pleasure because that is something that diet culture takes away from us and trauma also takes away from us, right? Mm-hmm. The, the ability to tune in, recognize our wants and needs and meet them rather than mm-hmm. pushing them away or telling ourselves we should need or want something else or that desire and pleasure are bad, right? And that those mm-hmm. are, because I think that's, that's such an overarching like drumbeat of diet culture is that desire will lead you astray. And mm-hmm. in fact, desire will lead you to wonderful things, if you can learn to tune into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's really, really lovely. And that sort of ties into another question I wanted to ask you, which is, this is going to be running the week before Christmas. And so there's, you know, this is the holiday season when when we're airing this episode, and people are probably engaging in a lot of holiday experiences, parties, you know, meals with family. And I've been thinking a lot about the role that pleasure and connection play in our relationship with food. And I think the holidays sort of symbolize that we gather together around food. We have these foods that are pleasurable and enjoyable and that are sort of special that come a few times a year, maybe. And so what are your thoughts on how people can sort of start to re-engage with pleasure and connection over food? around this time of year but really at any time?
1: I think it depends what else is going on for people so the idea of beginning to next suggests that there's been some sort of disconnection and I suppose it would depend on what people need to do I think a core thing is to feel safe that we're not going to experience pleasure if we don't feel safe so feeling safe around food and around the relationships that might be more prominent over Christmas than any other time prioritizing Safety, psychic safety, emotional safety, whatever that means for us. And apart from that, I think, again, the idea that pleasure is not a dirty word, that that can be quite revelationary, quite a revelation for some people. But perhaps Christmas isn't the time to... (laughs) (laughs) Christmas might not be the time to start experimenting with these ideas. (laughs) (laughs) It's already fraught. (laughs) Right. Uh, um, I think if people know... If people are expecting it to be an emotionally charged time or perhaps trickier than usual, then to make sure that they're able to do what they can beforehand to anticipate what they can and to be gentle with themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important, too, to say, like, this time of year is probably going to include more spending time with family members than other times of year. and that can be super fraught. And so to give yourself that safety, I love that idea. And that can include probably, right, like taking care of your needs with food, you know, aside from the big holiday meals, like meeting your own needs to the extent that you are able to separate from those times and sort of giving yourself the compassion and grace around the times that are going to be really fraught and difficult, you know, that those might not be the times when you're, able to care for yourself in the way that you would like to. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes into that. There are reasons for that, right? Yeah, Not feeling safe is a big one. Mm -hmm. And then one last thing I wanted to ask you, because you co-authored a paper that I'm constantly recommending to anyone looking for the scientific bases of This weight-inclusive approach, this non-weight-biased approach to food and bodies, which is called Weight Science, Evaluating the Evidence for a Paradigm Shift. You co-authored that with Linda Bacon. And that paper, I think, is so great at sort of synthesizing and, and giving an overview of some of the science on weight stigma, weight cycling, like the reasons why the traditional weight paradigm doesn't work. And so we only have a few minutes, but just sort Mm -hmm. of a quick, a quick overview, if you could, of A, what it was like to write that paper, because I'm very curious about that process, and B, some of the highlights in terms of what you found in the research, particularly on weight stigma. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, it's a while since that was written. so. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm having to think back. But I do know that in terms of hits, it's had an extraordinary amount of hits. I think it's over 300,000. Wow. So it certainly is a paper that a lot of people go to. And I think it's a really, really, really useful as a reference list, as a repository of citations that can help people to feel confident in starting a conversation around, let's do things differently. I think it's really, really important for that. The references on weight stigma, the references that I knew when we'd Written it. I'd done um, another sort of project before that when I was actually working for the Welsh Assembly Government, writing a report on size discrimination in employment. So I'd done a lot of research on that and looked at size stigma through a disability lens, well, through an intersectional lens, and that was the the references that I was bringing to that paper. And Linda Bacon had done a lot of work on weight stigma. And off the top of my head, I'd say that I can't remember precisely, but I would say that most of the references that were used on, I I imagine there was a lot of references that were used from Linda's existing work on that. I think that the area where I contributed more was around the social determinants of health and theories around integrating, how do we integrate social determinants of health into the nutrition conversation? That was work that I'd done for well now. And it's continued doing as well. And one thing that I find interesting about that paper, as well as when I go back and critique it, is that there's a a flaw in the theory of it. So, certainly, all the references and everything, they still say what we hold them up to say, but there's a sort of a theoretical impasse because we talk about, we give a definition for health at every size that locates health in health behaviours, and then we talk about social justice and social determinants in a way that contradicts that statement so there's certainly room for critique in it there but the use of it as a really helpful list of citations and and also the earlier bit where we talk through the blood pressure and body size dangers of weight cycling that's all really really helpful
0: yeah and I think it's
1: helpful to go back and revisit these things.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, as a starting point for people who are coming out of the traditional weight paradigm, I think it does a great job of just synthesizing all of the science on like, here's why this isn't true. Here's why this doesn't work. Here's what an alternative explanation of of why there's an association between size and certain health outcomes or whatever is wonderful. Yeah. But I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up about the idea of locating health and behaviors versus an understanding of social determinants of health. And that's been one thing that I've struggled with in speaking about health at every size, too, because I, I find that some people want to interpret health at every size to mean, well, health is all about behaviors and it's not about weight. But that's actually just another way of sort of making health a personal problem <laughs> like one mm-hmm. one's individual responsibility, right? That neoliberal idea that you were talking mm-hmm. about versus saying like there are things you can do behaviorally to help your health, yes and they don't have anything to do with weight and here, here are some options and let's talk about this larger context of social justice and social determinants and that has a bigger impact on people's actual health outcomes than the individual behaviors do so while people can play a role in support their own health through the behaviors there's not going to be a huge move of the needle unless we can also change these social determinants and you know social injustices that are causing people to have these health outcomes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah certainly it's a population level yeah and I think the phrase that the term health at size has been really important in raising awareness of size stigma so I think there's a, there's great value in that. But yes, what you've pointed to, the need to be careful about how we define what we're doing, because it can lead, again, because the frameworks of thought that we bring into being will lead us into a reductionist paradigm and back into healthism, or into a more relational and socially integrated paradigm that can make sense of trauma, that can make sense of justice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the goal, right? That sort of integrated paradigm. I can see how, how valuable that is. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is such important wisdom, I think, for, for people who are looking to move their practices in that direction or who are individuals coming to Health at Every Size and wanting to use it to support their own well-being, like to give space and credence to all these other factors that are beyond our control. So thank you so much. And can you tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work?
1: Well, thank you, Christy. It's been
0: great chatting.
1: And and also, because I know the reach that your podcast has, which is just fabulous that so many people are getting to hear different views. So my website, which is com, and there's a lot of, I've got stuff that I've written on there, links to articles, links to some YouTube videos where I'm using exercises that explain how we will go about teaching some of the Well Now principles. And I've also got some of my poetry on that site. And another place would be the book that I co-authored with Linda Bacon called Body Respect. I co-authored it. It was sort of part of the process that it was written before I'd drawn a distinction between Well Now and Health at Every Size. So the work, I would write something differently now, and I still think it has a lot to offer. And it can be really useful, I think, for readers to look at. So, so in the book, we call it a weight equitable approach. That's what we theorize. And yet, health at every size, by definition, is weight neutral. So it was sort of thinking through, this is sort of part of the process of taking a step back and looking more at theory. But certainly, body respect has got a lot of really, really useful theory in it.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful introduction, I think, to this this paradigm so we'll definitely link to that in the show notes link to your website as well so people can find you right and yeah it's been such a pleasure talking with you thank you so much for all that you shared it was really wonderful thanks christy and that's our show. Thanks again so much to Lucy Afremor for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to start putting intuitive eating and body acceptance into practice in your life, grab my free quick start guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. It's like a bonus podcast episode to help you break free from diet culture and start on the road to intuitive eating. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If this podcast has helped you, then please help us spread the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms especially helps bring us up in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to drown out those pro-diet messages that are so prevalent this time of year and so that we can keep rising up in the health category. Just click on the three dots at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen if you're listening in Apple Podcasts and click share episode at the bottom of the drop- down menu. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 135 for episode 135. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to give up dieting and make peace with food once and for all, come join this amazing community of people who are on the same path and here to support you. Learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Thanks to our amazing editors and engineers at Podcast Fast Track, our administrative and community manager, Ashley Saroya, and Abby Moore Photography, who photographed our album art, and Meredith Noble, who helped design it. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. What's your fool And you ain't really beat Have you ever went Or would be your friend's house to-